greetings everyone. Good to see you today. It's good to be with you. Uh, before, before we dive into our topic and passage today, I just wanted to share with you, some of you already uh, had seen this before, but just a brief Hodge family update. And uh, in November of 2020, after serving here for 17 years on staff, um, God provided Pastor Corey and, uh, to serve in the lead role here in partnership with Pastor Andrew. And, uh, and I began a new journey serving full-time as the National Karis Fellowship Coordinator. And if you're not already aware, you can see it up on the screen here. The Karis Fellowship is an association of approximately 250 interdependent churches and ministries in the United States and Canada who share a commitment to biblical truth, biblical relationship, and biblical mission. And it's my job to try to help us all get along and collaborate and cooperate on different things. And so my staff team, which has been growing just in the last um, last six months or so, uh, we're currently busy preparing for our national conference in Winona Lake, Indiana this July. And also to add to some of the busyness, um, in about a week I fly off to Washington State to visit a bunch of our churches there. And then a little trip up to Alaska after that to visit a few of our churches up there as well um, and participate in some training sessions. So this is certainly a new adventure for me. Um, how many of you have been to Alaska before? There's a good few of you. I've never been there before, so I'm looking forward to it. It'll be my first trip. My wife and I came here to Grace Family Church in 2004. Can you remember 2004? Um, have a look up on the screen here. I dug a photo out uh, from my archives here. This is from 2004, and you might see some people you recognize there. Uh, in the middle, you see Jesse Rutledge there. He's uh, looking a bit different these days, carrying a baby or two around. And uh, then you can see Carly Kreider. And uh, up the back there with less facial hair is Darren Sando. And then Frank McAdams. And then me looking a bit younger with a bit more hair on the top of my head. But uh, um, 2004, it's a good while ago. Um, but uh, after over 18 years of involvement here, we have recently felt that God has been telling us that it's time to spread our wings a little bit. And uh, some of you might say, well, it's about time. But uh, in recent weeks, our family has started making some more connections with the folks at Gateway, just a little bit south of us. Um, it's our sister Karis Fellowship Church and located near Parksburg. And for many of you, that won't really be a big surprise as I have a history of working closely with their leadership for over a decade now. Um, in fact, our church here has been a direct benefit and still continues to be from that collaboration and partnership with Gateway. I know that Pastor Corey is involved in the cohort that we got started a number of years ago, and uh, it's amazing what can happen when churches collaborate and cooperate together. Um, and our, and um, uh, know, that, know that we do deeply love and uh, appreciate and value and are proud of Grace Family Church and we're very excited about what God's doing as Pastor Corey and Pastor Andrew are providing great leadership for this next chapter in our church's history here. So while you're going to see us perhaps a little less often, uh, we're still around and there may be some other weeks where Pastor Corey's like, hey, I need somebody to preach on such and such a time and we're certainly around and hopefully that can work out too. I did just want to say a big thank you to our church family. Some of you are new faces. You don't know me all that well, but I have been around here a long time. Uh, but I want to say a thank you for all of your love and your care and encouragement over the years, uh, for loving on our kids for their entire lives. We came here with no kids, and now I have uh, uh, four kids. One of them is a 17-year-old driving on the road. That's a lot of transition there. 
Um, and this is this is certainly a new chapter for our story as well as yours. And actually, part of part of the reason that we're making a few changes here too is it's actually healthy and good for our kids to experience in different environments as well when it comes to their faith journey and their um, understanding of who God is and things like that. But speaking of, of, of stories, the story of this church, the story of us, but uh, speaking of stories, that's some of what we're going to be talking about today. And in recent weeks, uh, we've been going through this series on the problem of Jesus. And a number of things that I'm going to be sharing with you today are discussed in more detail. And I'm going to be pulling some quotes and bits out of a book written by Mark Clark. I don't know how to say that the best, because in America, it's Mark Clark. In Australia, it's Mark Clark. Okay, and I should know because my middle name is Mark and my mother's maiden name was Clark. So, but uh, I'll try to pronounce the R properly for you guys. So. Pastor Corey has shared um, before how here at GFC we exist to establish people on the foundation of Jesus. And I love that. But if that's so, then if, if, what are the implications? If, if Jesus is who he says he is, what do we do with the stories that are attributed to him? What do we do with them? If you have read through any of the Gospels before, you would have come across some of the stories that Jesus told. These stories or parables, if you calculate them all, they actually come up to about a third of all of the recording teaching of Jesus. That's quite a lot when you think about it. A third of his recording teaching is parables that he told. And uh, there's about 46 different recorded parables among the four Gospels. In Matthew, there's 23 of them, of which 11 are specific to the book of Matthew and not found anywhere else. Mark has, um, sorry, Luke has about 24 of them, of which 18 are unique to the, to the Gospel of Luke. Mark has eight of them, of which uh, two are unique, and John has about another 15 or so. So they're scattered throughout the Gospels there. Up on the screen, you'll see a list of just some of the well-known ones. And if you look over that, you'll see some that kind of stand out. And you're like, yeah, I remember us looking at that. Or I remember reading that in my, in my personal devotion time or something. But these are some of the more known ones. But if you dig around, you'll find that, again, there's, there's 46 total that we could put up on the list here. You will notice also up there that some of them occur in multiple gospel accounts. Some of them are in three gospels. A number of them are in two. And then there's a bunch that are independent there. But skeptics, what, what skeptics often do, skeptics often try to bring doubt to the legitimacy of the Gospels by sort of honing in on these stories, arguing that because the details often differ, or well, they can't be trusted. They look at the account in one Gospel, and they look at another one, and they look extremely similar, and they're like, well, how can this be talking about the same thing? Because this detail is different, and this detail is different. And, and people who don't want to accept the authority of Scripture who don't want to be under that authority, who want to try to discredit the Bible, will often raise that up as an argument to say, see, you can't trust it. There are some differences in the details. And critics like to say, hey, the Bible contradicts itself. And I, I love how one um, author responded to this. He made the comment here. He said, any historian knows this is wrongheaded. I actually like that term. I'm wondering if that might be a good term to use when somebody's frustrating you. Man, they're acting really wrong-headed today. I don't know. Might be a good one. And the reason it's wrong-headed is because it fails to recognize the reality of the situation. When you think about all of the conversations that people had with Jesus, when they interacted him with him, what, how did they refer to him? What did they address him as? 
Did they rock up to him and say, hey, Jesus, I have a question for you? Well, if you read through the Gospels, you will find that there's times where those that were closest to him, who understood who he was and believed him, would refer to him as Lord. And, they, and the disciples would say, Lord, can you tell us this? Lord, can you tell us this? But for everybody else, for the most part, they called him, what do you think the word is? They called him teacher. They called him teacher. And why was it that they called him teacher? It's because that's what Jesus did. He was known by all that encountered him. He was known as a teacher, somebody who traveled around and taught. And again, what do teachers do? What are teachers supposed to do? They're supposed to teach. They're supposed to give instruction. Why do you think there's so much controversy in our culture today about the content of school textbooks and which books are being pushed by various political persuasions or agendas? It's because stories are powerful. And teaching through stories is powerful and enduring because stories shape belief and they shape identity and they shape values and they shape worldview. Stories are incredibly powerful. And I know when I was younger and I would read through some of these parables of Jesus in the New Testament there, I kind of imagine Jesus being a little bit kind of uh, random with his storytelling. I don't know if that's been true with you too, but I kind of sometimes have the picture that Jesus was sort of like, um, he'd see a tree and would be like, you know what? That fig tree is like a blah, blah, blah. And he just randomly pick these different stories on the spot and make up something about it to try to sort of teach some sort of thing there. And then he'd move on to another location and he'd maybe see something else and make up some sort of random story or riddle or something like that about that. And while Jesus sometimes did point to various people or objects, things, situations as as a launch point in sharing a parable, to think that he shared these stories just once is, what was the word that the guy used there? Wrong-headed. It's wrong-headed. It doesn't make sense. And the reason is because good stories are often repeated. Good stories are often repeated. And the gospel, I would argue, is the greatest story. Those of us who have kids or had kids years ago that were younger, I don't know about you, but the storybooks that my kids read, do they read them once and say, okay, we're done with that now? Okay, they don't. They read them over and over again. That's why I've memorized multiple poems from Dr. Seuss and a whole bunch of other ones over the years, because they want to hear them again and again and again. And I won't show off my Dr. Seuss skills this morning. I've done that before. Some of the stories that Jesus told were told again in a different setting with a different audience with different details added or modified. And that's pretty simple, really, when you think about it. True. If you think of these parables as being once and done, then, yeah, there might be some challenges there. But that wasn't the case with the parables. I've been a pastor now for over 20 years and during that time when I'm asked to preach somewhere other than Grace Family Church like next Sunday I'll be in uh, Goldendale, Washington State um, speaking there Um, do I create a brand new sermon and craft a brand new sermon when I go somewhere else or do I go to something that I already have and modify it and tweak it and adjust it for a different audience what do you think? of course I do that of course I do that Good stories are often repeated. And by the way, there's a lot of my sermons that are like, yeah, that wasn't a good one, so I'll leave those in the, in the files there somewhere. But there's other ones that I feel like God used well. 
and I'll pull them out and use them again. The apparent contradictions in the gospel records of the parables are in fact really not a problem at all. In fact, it's what you would simply expect when a story is repeated and heard by different people at different times. They're going to recollect it. Some of them are going to recollect different details from the stories that they're hearing multiple times. And in my mind, that's a pretty clear answer to the critics who try to point to the Bible and say, see, the parables contradict, so you can't trust the Bible. Well, I can trust the Bible because these stories were repeated. They weren't necessarily once and done. But even with that sort of criticism responded to, what are, what are we supposed to do with the parables that Jesus told? How are we supposed to approach them? What are we supposed to do when it comes to looking at them? Because they can seem rather abstract and hard to understand sometimes. Would you agree? Some of the parables, when you read through them, it's like, what the heck's going on here? <laughs> what, is, what, is, what is this about? In fact, even the disciples were often baffled at the meaning behind the stories that Jesus told. And, um, and there's a few situations where we have the disciples kind of asking for some clarifying questions. Have a look in uh, Mark chapter 4 here. It says in verse 33, with many similar parables, this is Jesus talking to the multitudes. It says, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. Think about that. It's amazing. When Jesus spoke to the multitudes, he didn't just chit-chat. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. And here is where I believe we can easily misunderstand the nature and the intent of parables and what they were intended to do and what they conveyed, especially in the culture in which they were presented. Because in our Western culture today, and especially what we observe in, in teaching settings like school and even, even in church services, we're, we're kind of used to stories being told and, and illustrations being used in order to take some perhaps complex or, or some uh, c uh, confusing things and sort of simplify them and make them more understandable. That's the way we do things in our culture. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's helpful and necessary in many contexts. And some people think that, that Jesus was pointing to these things to sort of try to sort of simplify these concepts. And that is wrong. That is not the, the case. That is not the approach that was given there. Because simplicity and understanding is not always a motivator to right action or necessary life change. People don't just blindly respond obediently to every instruction that's given. Would you agree with that? How many of you uh, sped on the way to church here this morning? No, don't put your hand up there. Okay, that's fine. Um, we, we don't always see, a, see something or get given an instruction and say, well, okay, I'll do that, or okay, I won't do that. We make our decisions on stuff by other values, by other things there, not from a list of rules, not because one person said something, but we do it based on our developed worldview. As we discuss um, this topic further, perhaps it would be helpful to better define what a parable actually is. And there's a uh, gentleman who wrote a, a monumental thesis on the parables. His name is Clint Snodgrass. Would you like that name? Clint Snodgrass. And here's what he said. He defined parables this way. He said, at its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt 
about its precise application to tease it into active thought. Did you get that? That's an amazing definition. It is not that the parables were given to sort of make it be like, oh, okay, that's simple. Okay, I understand that easily. Parables were taught not to just make you go, oh, okay, that's more on my level. Parables were intentionally taught to cause you to think, to cause you to wrestle, to cause you to say, well, hang on a second. Based on what you said, does that mean this? Parables were created that way. Parables I have here on the screen. Parables are not merely illustrations. Jesus taught in parables to communicate in a way that went deeper, further than a simple explanation of facts. And he did this to bring about a new reality. He didn't just come and say, here's truth, do what I say. He came and he taught through parables and he caused people to say, you know what? Have I been understanding things correctly? Have I been understanding God correctly? Have I been understanding what I'm supposed to do in life correctly? And that's what great stories do. Another quote here from Mark Clark. They don't spoon feed us information. Stories don't spoon feed us information or allow us to remain passive observers when it comes to parables. They invite us. They invite us. That indeed force us to become active participants and in so doing they capture the one part of us nothing else can our imaginations which almost above all else need capturing and reorientation when shaping our lives one of the observable traits of mankind um, uh, and especially in our modern western culture is that we take great, great pride in pulling things apart and dis di dissecting things and, and studying them and putting them in jars and labels and so that we can stand back this and sort of say, you know what, I'm so clever, I've figured this out. We like to do that in our culture. But you know, that's not the end goal. That's not the end goal and it shouldn't be the end goal for any of the um, approaches to the teachings of Jesus, especially in the parables. Some of you may have heard of a gentleman named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German theologian. He was actually hung at the end of World War II uh, by the Nazis because of his opposition to the Nazis. Look what he says in this next quote. He says this, What a mistake to think that, that it is the task of theology to unravel God's mystery, to bring it down to the flat, ordinary human wisdom of experience and reason. No, he says, it is the task of theology solely to preserve God's wonder, to glorify God's mystery as mystery. If you think that, that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time or a short period of time, if you think that the longer that I follow Jesus, the more that I study my Bible, I'm going to get to the point where I've got it all figured out. You're not going to get there. In fact, as a student of theology for a number of years, I'll tell you, the digger you deep, what happens, the, the, digger, the deeper you dig, not the digger you dig, the deeper you dig, what happens, Corey? The less you feel like you know, the more it's like, oh my word, God is incredible and his word is amazing. There were times where Jesus was blunt and to the point in what he said, but more often he used parables to reach beneath the hearer's reason in order to explore their passions and their desires. 
And I alluded to this a moment ago, but we live in a world where signs are everywhere. If you take a note, we, we sort of overlook them, but signs are everywhere. There are, of course, uh, countless road signs. There are, there are speed limits, which some of you take as um, suggestions. Um, I do too. Um, detours, warning signs. Um, sometimes your coffee cup will have a warning on it somewhere. But does everybody, and, and, and sorry, a lot of these signs are simple and plain. Would you agree? A lot of signs are even have pictures there. So you don't even have to be able to read to understand what's going on. But does everybody obey a sign just because it's there? No. There's something else that governs what we do and what we don't do. I was at the grocery store this week and Ben, my, uh, my eight-year-old, um, he wanted to ride in the, in the shopping cart there. And he actually wanted to ride in the part where you put your legs through. And it's like, dude, you can't fit in there anymore. So we're not going to do that. So he, he climbed inside the car. And we're, and we're going down the aisle there. And he kind of taps me on the arm. And he points, points to a sign on the cart that has a picture of a kid riding in the cart with a big circle and a line through it saying what? Don't do that. And what do you say to your son about that? It's like, yeah, there is a sign that says don't do that. But, um, and we just sort of had a brief chat about it. But uh, am I going to stop my kids from riding in the cart because somebody who made the cart put a sign like that on it? No, probably not. I'm going to go by some other values, some other decisions, some other criteria. Because we disregard or choose to ignore plain and simple signs all the time. If there's something just plain, it doesn't mean we're going to say, oh, okay. And that's actually a good thing. One of the great authors of the 20th century, Chaim Potik, said in his novel, The Gift of Asher Lev, he said this, truth has to be given in riddles. Now, I'm not saying I 100% agree with this, but I like what, he, what he's getting at. People can't take truth if it comes charging at them like a bull. The bull is always killed. He says you, you have to give people the truth in a riddle, hide it so they go looking for it and find it piece by piece. That way they learn to live with it. Interesting. It's not a matter of just saying, here's what you have to do, follow this. It's a matter of if you really want life change, if you really want substantive life change, you need to get beyond that. You need to get to the point where people dive in and dig in and explore and think. And I would suggest to you that there are some world religions and cults and some other uh, philosophies that are around today where they don't agree with that. They, they like, I would rather just share something and then have people blatantly obey that. My brother-in-law grew up as, uh, till he was uh, late teens, he grew up in Iran. And he grew up in a situation where here are the things and this is what you do and this is how you live and this is whatever. And it was with the expectation that everybody would just say, oh, okay. And most people would do that. But when he ended up moving over to the United States and uh, somebody took him along to church and he heard the gospel for the first time, it caused him to dig in and investigate and think through and ultimately surrender his life to Jesus. The parables of Jesus were not just teaching illustrations. They were masterful stories that invited the hearer to think and imagine and wrestle with their current understanding of things in order to call all of us, both past, present, and future, to the life that God intended. 
Now, one of the things I wanted to just um, point out here again from some of the uh, research that we've been tapping into, a number of scholars have stated um, in recent years, and actually going back a little bit further than that, their observation that all the great stories, all the great stories throughout history contain at least one of seven basic plots. And in his work on this topic, uh, a gentleman by the name of Christopher Booker, he explains them this way. We're going to go through the seven here, and this is just a summary. Overcoming the monster. In this setting, peace and tranquility are disturbed by a power of some sort that needs to be confronted so a community is saved from evil and put back to rights. Characters must overcome a power to reach their goal. And a couple of contemporary examples, James Bond, Frankenstein, okay? The next one here, number two. Number two, we have rags to riches, common one, especially with a number of movies. The, the poor protagonist or the key character in the story acquires things such as power and wealth before losing it all and then gaining it back upon personal growth. Have you ever seen that in a movie plot before? How about the next one? The next one, voyage and return. The main character, the protagonist, leaves their normal experience to enter an alien world or some foreign situation We'll wait for that to go there. Returning after what often amounts to a thrilling escape. And think of The Wizard of Oz or Peter Pan as some examples there. The next one here, number four, rebirth. Rebirth. The protagonist suddenly finds a new reason for living. During the course of the story, an important event forces the main character to change his ways, often making him a better person. And I don't know about you, but my father-in-law, he, he loves the Christmas Carol. And so he would, um, he would uh, a, Chris, he, a Christmas Carol, he would watch that movie um, each year. And, uh, and then, of course, Avatar um, is kind of a similar theme there. I saw a joke from Babylon B that talked about Av Avatar 2's coming out, and it's been like 10 years since the other one came out. And the joke was that Avatar 2 is just going to be an hour of what happened in Avatar 1, so everybody could be caught up with different things there because it was so long. But anyway, rebirth. The next one here, The Quest. The protagonist goes into a strange land and after overcoming the threats it poses, returns with experience. Along the way, there is priceless treasure worth any effort to achieve, but also many obstacles and temptations. And think Pilgrim's Progress or Raiders of the Lost Ark as some examples there. Number six, comedy. This is a story wherein the conflict becomes more and more confusing, but is at last made plain in a single clarifying event. The resolution of some conflict is made, paving the way for reconciliation and celebration. And uh, my one there, The Princess Bride, I don't know if you've seen that before, but that taps into that. And then tragedy is the last one. This story contains a major character with one major character flaw or a great mistake that they've made, which is ultimately his undoing. His unfortunate end evokes pity at his folly and the fall of a fundamentally good character. And of course, the classic example is Romeo and Juliet. So there's seven plots, seven plots that scholars have said all the great stories of all time contain at least one, sometimes a little bit more, of these seven plots. Now, this gentleman who outlined this, Booker, he also wrote this. He said, and one quote up on the screen here, there are many stories which are shaped by more than one basic plot at a time. Okay, many have more than one. And he goes on and says, there are even a very small number of stories 
um, including the Lord of the Rings, he gave an example, which include all seven of the plots. Okay, so there's a few stories that contain all seven of the plots. And I want you to keep that in mind as we look just now at one of the parables of Jesus, one of the well-known ones that we're going to use as, as an example here for a few minutes. I'm going to ask you to read along, if you wouldn't mind, uh, up on the screen um, or the follow-along notes in, uh, on your phone there. Um, but I'd ask you to read along. We're going to read the story here of the lost son. So let's jump in. If the screen goes off, I'll just try to fill in here. Okay? We are having the flickering screen issue again today. But let me just uh, read along here and jump in. As long as you can see the words, jump in. Ready? Out loud. Jesus continued... There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Okay, thank you for reading half of that out loud with me. So one day we'll be able to figure out what's going on there and get that fixed. But I want you to think about what we just read through, what we just listened through. And I want you to remember the quote that I mentioned just before that, where the gentleman said that there are many stories which are shaped by more than one basic plot at a time. And he said that there are even, there are even a very small number of stories, including the Lord of the Rings, which include all seven of the plots. And I'm wondering, have you watched the, have you watched the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings before? How many of you watched the movies, all of them? Okay, how long does it take to watch them? Yep, that's right, about 12 hours, 11 to 12 hours to watch them back to back there. If you're a reader and you want to read Tolkien's books there, um, it's going to take you about 37 hours reading at 250 words per minute, okay? That's a fair bet. And within those 12 hours of watching or 37 hours of reading, you have an intricate story that covers and includes elements from the seven basic plots. Yet incredibly, incredibly, Look up on the screen here. You'll see this, that this short parable of the lost son that we just read contains all seven of the plots of every great story we have told ourselves since the dawn of civilization. Just think about that for a moment. That one little story that we read in 20 verses contains all seven of the greatest plots, the, the, the plots that, that make up those stories. Have a, have a glance here again, if it will allow us up on the screen there. Number one was overcoming the monster. Um, think about the lost son, the prodigal son there. Peace and tranquility disturbed. Hey, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Okay? The family honor was kind of broken there and, and shattered there. Family reputation. And it goes on there that, that something, something has, is happening and there's some monster that needs to be confronted. And in this parable, the, um, the monster lies within the egocentric son who basically says, I want all my money now, and went, goes off and leads a, a reckless, selfish life. And in that particular case, the father, who's the hero, goes out to meet the son upon his return home. How about rags to riches? How about looking at that one? The poor protagonist acquires things such as power and wealth before losing it all and then gaining it back upon personal growth. Did you see that in the story? Okay, that's in there. How about the voyage and return? The protagonist leaves their normal experience to enter an alien world, returning after what amounts to a thrilling escape. Okay? That's kind of a core central um, motive on the prodigal son story. How about rebirth? The protagonist suddenly finds a new reason for living. During the course of the story, an important event forces the main character to change his ways, often making him a better person. Did you see that in the story at all? Did you see the, the son feeding pigs and being hungry and wanting to eat the pods that he's feeding the pigs? Incredible. Incredible there. I'll move on here. Um, how about the quest? The protagonist goes to a strange land and over, after overcoming the threats, returns with experience. Along the way, there is priceless treasure worth any effort to achieve, but also many obstacles and temptations. That's in there as well. Remember, he was pursuing after pleasure and living a life, uh, the good life of pleasure and reputation, and he came to realize that that's not, not what it's all about. Number six, comedy. 
that whole idea of a, a clarifying event and then there's some reconciliation and celebration that ends all of that and and by the way there's a little bit of of, of comedy comedy can be irony as well correct irony can be part of comedy there and it is ironic that a Jewish gentleman who from a from wealth and prestige found himself in a place feeding pigs what were Jewish people's relationship with pigs okay that's like the worst of the worst that's not just like I had to be a farmer that's like you had to do something that was completely not what Jewish young men were doing and then tragedy of course some major character flaw great mistake which is ultimately an undoing uh, we're gonna we're gonna see that in a different couple of different ways um, because every part of the son's request for the property defies Jewish convention and standards of normality it would have been like the, the the younger son it would have been like saying dad I wish you were dead that that's that's what his request was and instead of merely being a simple story of a lost son the fact is that thousands of years before a theory was proposed that the greatest and most dominant stories of our lives contain these seven these seven plots these seven stories and the parables that Jesus told again were used to grab people's attention with vivid illustrations and cause them to do what to think and to engage and to process Got a few more things for you here, but back to back quickly to Snodgrass's definition. I think I might change my last name to Snodgrass. Um, be fun. Um, at its simplest, and if your name's Snodgrass, I apologize because I'm poking a bit of fun there. Um, at its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness, leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. Parables, I just want to say, are intentionally designed to make you think and explore and imagine, evoking personal application and life change along the way. And so just in the last few minutes here, using the example of the lost son, what is some of the personal application and life change that can result? Before going there, it's important to look at uh, the, the audience that Jesus was addressing here. And to discover the audience, we need to look at um, the first couple of verses of Luke chapter 15, where it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. So these parables were taught to who? Tax collectors and who? And sinners. Okay. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus told this parable. So you have two crowds here. You have the the, the down and out sort of sinful, the we're not measuring up to the standards of God or the standards of the law. And then you have the religious people who are like, we are living up to the standards of the law. We are great and you guys are scum. That's kind of the tensions that are going on here. The parable of the lost son, though, is not just about one lost son. And you've probably heard this before. It's about two lost sons. The sons are both lost in this story. They're just lost in different ways. The younger brother is lost because he is completely irreligious. He's acting in a way where he's just blowing things off and just doing his own stuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the gifts from God like life and breath and sunshine, but I don't care about a relationship with God. I want what I want. Does that sound common in our culture today? All right. But listen to this. The older brother is lost because of religion. 
He's lost. He he is he is uh, conservative. He's obeying God's rules. Yet he's self righteous. He compares himself with others. Even in his argument to Dad, it's like I've done all of this and I've done all of this and and that son of yours. Did you notice that in the story? He didn't say my brother. He said that son of yours. The older brother is lost just as much, and some would argue even more, because of religion. Have a look at this quote. Jesus' parable is not a nice sentimental message. It is a controversial, scandalous story where he hints that everything we've believed about God has been completely wrong. Salvation is not what we can do for God, but about what God does for us, running out to meet us, sacrificing his most prized possession, experiencing shame and mockery himself so that we don't have to. It leads to an amazing celebration for those humble enough to receive grace rather than trying to earn a place for themselves. The scandalous generosity of the Father was just as much a problem for Jesus' audience as it remains today. And I want to suggest to you the application of this message, of this parable, is for every single one of us today, past and present. The tax collectors and the sinners who knew they were far from God, they found hope in the portrayal of the Father's grace and forgiveness and generosity. And then the other audience there, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they had their pride and arrogance confronted directly, challenging their assumption that they would be considered right with God because of their actions and righteous living. Because there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves whole enough. There's no work that we can do to measure up to the standard that God set. It makes us think of a verse that this should be familiar with you. It's kind of almost like a a summary verse that you can easily tack on to the story of the lost son. And it's from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 where he says it is by, can you read this out loud with me? We'll see if it stays on here. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This parable is a story of grace, and grace is a gift. It's a beautiful thing that we can see brought to life through the parable that we've looked at today. Another comment here, the parables of Jesus are not simple and inconsequential. They are profound and life-giving. And if you're here today or watching online and you've had a a skeptical or even a, a dismissive view towards the stories that Jesus told, I encourage you to dive into them more, for in them you will find truth and life and meaning and purpose and it might take a little bit of work and it might take some mental energies and it might take calling out to God and saying God I don't I don't get it what are you wanting to teach me through this and if you are a follower of Jesus and you tend to believe that your good choices and lifestyle make you somehow more favored by God than your neighbor which is easy for us to do I encourage you to dive into the parables of Jesus more intentionally for in them you will find truth and wisdom and instruction and correction which all of us are in desperate need of parables are an important part of the word of god and my prayer is that next time in your bible reading next time that you encounter a parable you won't be like oh man what's this another one of these confusing things my hope is that that you would be evoked to sort of say okay what is this let's look at this from a different angle here 
Let's look at it not as an illustration to explain things easily, but as something to cause us to think and to journey. Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. The word of God exposes our innermost thoughts and desires, and the more time we spend with it, the better. If you want to establish your life on the foundation of Jesus, if you want to do that, which is what our church is all about here, then I encourage you to dig deeper into the things that Jesus said, to wrestle and to explore the stories that he has told. And may God bless you as you apply his word to your life. Would you join me for a brief word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the intricacies and the amazing depth of Scripture. Lord, I thank you for these stories that, uh, that you told to an audience a couple of thousand years ago that had incredible meaning and application to them, but has the same amount of incredible meaning and application to us today. I pray that we would not be lazy Bible readers, that we wouldn't read based on volume to be able to say, oh, I read so many chapters a day. I pray, Lord, that we would dig in, that we would ask your Holy Spirit to, to share with us and to reveal to us what you want us to learn and apply to our lives so that we can become all that you intended us to be. I thank you for this church family. I thank you for the work that you're doing. I thank you for the lives that are being changed. I'm excited to see what you're going to continue to do in the days ahead. In Jesus' name. Thank you.